There are some people that you would probably not choose uh, to put your children to bed at night with a nice, comforting bedtime story. And one of those is the prophet Amos. I don't think that I would select Amos to be the one uh, to rock my children to sleep at night. Uncle Amos, what is our bedtime story this evening? Well, children, I'm going to tell you about that one particular time as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. Or about that other time uh, that a man went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Uh, let's tell that story. The story of Amos in this book of nine chapters in our Bible is just about exclusively judgment. It was God's judgment. He says, shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no darkness and no light, I'm sorry, no brightness in it. Now, Amos, this comes from a somewhat plain man who was a very plain spoken man. This is the kind of just ordinary guy who's going to tell it like it is. Who was Amos? Amos uh, was an ordinary guy. We learn from Amos chapter 7 that he was simply a shepherd. He was a herdman. He was the guy out with the flocks. He was a planter of sycamore trees. He wasn't a professional prophet. He wasn't trained to this. One day he got a call from God. Go testify. Go prophesy. And so what did he do? That's exactly what it did, what he did. In fact, I thought it was a little bit telling about this fairly plain-spoken man. In Amos chapter 7, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, of the kind of capital city uh, of ancient Israel and its religious hub, uh, sends to Jeroboam II, Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, who reigned sometime in the 8th century B.C. If you just think Amos is prophesying around 750 B.C., you're going to be in the right ballpark. Uh, he was a contemporary of Isaiah. He was a contemporary of Hosea. He was a contemporary of Jonah. And here's this man who we know from Amos 1 is from Tekoa. Tekoa is actually about a dozen miles south of Jerusalem. But most of his prophecy is not toward the southern kingdom, the two tribes of Judah. Most of his testimony is against the northern kingdom, the ten kingdoms of Israel that had split off. So again, just picture this. You've got just this very ordinary, hard-scrabble kind of guy used to being out in the fields with the sheep. God calls him from the southern kingdom of Judah to be a prophet, and he goes up into the northern kingdom of Israel and starts preaching the word to them as some guy from the rival southern kingdom. And Amaziah says to Jeroboam, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. And Amaziah says to him, O thou seer, you professional prophet, go flee thee away into the land of Judah and there eat bread and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. 
Buzz off. Go back to your homeland and prophesy. Well, Amos gives a, a very understated response to that, uh, a very meek and mild response. He says, after telling him, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore tr- uh, fruit. He says, now therefore hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord, thy wife shall be a harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. Like I said, a fairly plain-spoken man who did not care much for what the elites of his day thought about his message. Now, I start here because Amos gives this very shocking message to the people of his day. He says to them, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Now think about what that's saying. There were people in the northern kingdom of Judah who were saying, I can't wait for God to show up. I can't wait for God to come onto the scene and make everything better. And it's as if Amos is saying to them, do you really know what you're asking for? Notice, that day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days. And I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Amos is sending a message to God's people that their feast days... Their holy days will not protect them from the judgment of God. That when the day of the Lord signaling God's judgment is, will, it will come, it will come against them and their idle practices. It will be darkness and not light. And what he says to them, what God really desires in verse 24, he says, but let judgment, the idea is justice, run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. The title of the message this evening is Holidays and Holy Ways. Holidays and Holy Ways. Because ultimately, I think, particularly relevant to this Christmas season is that for these people of the northern kingdom of Israel, their feast days were not those that pleased God. Their holy days were not anything that drew them closer to God. They actually were so offensive to him that they were the absolute precursor to the judgment of God's people. And as we approach our own holiday in these next eight days, it would be good for us to hear these ancient words from Amos to God's people in the 8th century B.C., and see how they might apply to our own holy ways in a 21st century context as well. Holidays and holy ways. Let's start, first of all, by what I'm going to call an anticipation. The anticipation of the people to whom Amos was preaching. Again, 
we've given just a little bit of the context here. <coughs> Excuse me, a man named Amos, a commoner who was called to be a prophet, preaching in a time of Israel's greatest uh, prosperity, at least after the reign of David. Again, let's just break this down very quickly. You have David as Israel's greatest king, a united kingdom, Israel and Judah united together. He was followed by Solomon, a man who was the wisest who ever lived. And his kingdom saw a great golden era, but ended in the shrinking of that kingdom because of his own idolatry and personal failure. His son, Rehoboam, loses that united kingdom. Jeroboam I comes in, appointed by God, to take the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, and make them a united nation, Israel. Two tribes uh, called Judah, <coughs> the southern kingdom, are ones who remain under Rehoboam. And from that divided time, you fast forward perhaps 100, 150 years to the time of Rehoboam II, the king in the northern part, uh, uh, the northern kingdom of Judah, and Uzziah, the king in the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is the time period in which Amos is prophesying. And you can read about this time in Israel in 2 Kings chapter 14. In 2 Kings 14, you'll see the, just the uh, historical information about what was going on. And I just wanted to introduce this to you, what God says about Jeroboam. Jeroboam, who we'd say Jeroboam II, not the first Jeroboam who was involved in the breaking away of the northern tribes in the first place. Listen to what Scripture's view of Jeroboam is. It says, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's Jeroboam the first, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath, Hefer. So Jeroboam's reign was marked by moral evil, but it was marked by material success and prosperity. Israel was recovering its ancient land. Its borders were growing again. And it was marked by economic prosperity. You will see all over the book of Amos, as you read this book, you will see that Amos is focused on the people and their wealth and their injustice in obtaining that wealth. They were prosperous. In Amos 3, he talks about the winter house and the summer house being destroyed, as if these wealthy people not only had their winter houses, they had their summer houses. And any of you who have a cabin to live on should be shuddering in your seats. Or, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just, he's just saying, right? There's the winter house, there's the summer house. He speaks of houses of ivory. Amos does. He speaks in, in, in Amos 6 of beds of ivory, people laying on beds of ivory and stretching themselves out in their wealth and prosperity. They were a prosperous people, but they were also something else. They were a religious people. This is something that comes for, out over and over again in Amos. They were people who had their own form of worship. 
Now, again, you can go read about this earlier in our Bibles. You can see about the kind of hybrid worship that they had. You may recall that when the two kingdoms separated, the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom, Jeroboam had a problem. Where was the temple located? Was the temple located in the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom? The southern kingdom. And so Jeroboam says, if all of my people from the northern kingdom have to travel to the southern kingdom of Judah to worship God in the temple that's at Jerusalem, what's going to happen? They're going to say, well, why don't I just move here? And so there's going to be a flow of people from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. I can't have that. I'm going to create my own temple and my own kind of mixed, blended worship in Bethel, a place far away from the southern kingdom of Israel. We're going to go this way to worship, not that way. And so that's what, that's what Israel was marked by. It was, a mar it was marked by a kind of worship of Jehovah, uh, 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 at least a gesture toward the laws of Moses and the different sacrifices and the other things, but that was blended with its own form of, of uh, idolatry and of a worship that did not find its sanction in the Old Testament law. It was a blended form of worship. And this worship we see here described in the book of Amos, we see here even in verses 21 through 23, they had feast days, their holy days or holidays. They had their solemn assemblies when they'd meet together for a corporate religious purpose. They had burnt offerings. They had grain offerings. They had peace offerings. They had their own songs. They had worship. They had musical instruments. In fact, one chapter later, it's described that they invented to themselves instruments like David did. They were creative in their worship, looking to, to bring perhaps new songs and new ways of approaching God in worship. They were prosperous and they were religious. And can I just say how dangerous those two things are when they become married up? To be prosperous and to be religious? Why? Because the great danger for people who are prosperous and religious is that they modify their religion to become more prosperous. And then they take their prosperity as the evidence that God is pleased with their religiousness. And haven't we, haven't we seen that over and over again? We see the spiritual leaders in our country today and around the world becoming fabulously wealthy by telling people, this is what you need to do to be blessed by God. Look at me. And all the while, they're just bilking people left and right. And it's all under a veneer. It's all under a cover of religiosity. I am doing it because I am so close to God. They manipulate religion to get rich or to stay rich and then they justify their, their religion because, well, God's blessing me. Look at how wealthy I am. And this certainly seems to perhaps have been the case with these people in Amos' day. There was a cloak of religion that was for their covetousness. In fact, God says to them in chapter 4, he says in verse 4, as if I'll, I'll sarcastically, he says, come to Bethel and transgress. 
As I keep on going, you want to see this kind of sin that you're doing there in your religious ways? Multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the, three, the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. He's literally saying you love this. You love coming and offering your sacrifice of worship to me, I find it to be transgression. So notice this anticipation. They were, they, were, they were prosperous and they were religious. And therefore, what did they believe? That when the day of the Lord came, it would be what? It would be to their benefit. It would be to their blessing. And that's why Amos says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. You want God to show up on the scene. You want God to come and deliver you even further, to prosper you even more. You can just imagine those people of Amos' day that would have said, you know what, when God comes, it's going to get even better. When God shows up on the scene, when it's His day, all of our enemies better watch out. In fact, do you recall how the book of Amos begins? Do you recall how the book of Amos begins? The book of Amos begins in chapter 1, with God, with Amos giving judgment against Israel's neighbors, their neighbors. And can't you just imagine the people of Amos's day saying, preach it, brother. Yep, for three transgressions of Damascus, the Syrians, the hated Syrians, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. You get them, God. He says, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, the Philistines, I will not turn away the, the punishment thereof. Yeah, you get them. You get them, God. For three transgressions of Tyrus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Chapter 2, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And then for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And they're really, they're really hyped up now. That's right, the day of the Lord's coming and they're all gone. And what do you think they thought when the very next verse says this? For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Then it comes home. And what Amos is trying to communicate to them is that their anticipation that God is going to show up and he's going to be on their side is radically deceived. Because what he says is something very else. This is what I'm going to call the admonition from God. The admonition here in verse 18, To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. The day of the Lord, he says, is going to be as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. Think about that picture. I'm running away from the lion in the streets and suddenly I run straight into the teeth of a bear. The day of the Lord is going to be as if a man went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall. Whew, I'm safe. And there's a rattlesnake on the window. And a snake bites him. 
Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? What Amos is saying to these very religious and very prosperous people is saying, God's not coming for your enemies. He's coming for you. Oh, I should say, he's not coming just for your enemies. He's coming to deal with you. How did we start the service this evening? With that prophetic word from Malachi chapter 3. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. That is the message that God is trying to hammer through to these people of the northern kingdom of Israel. The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. And look at what he goes on to say in verse 20. So I'm sorry, verse 21. His opinion of their practices. I hate, I despise your feast days. Their holidays, their celebrations, their religious festivals. Now, we shouldn't discard the idea that some of these may have been the very festivals, at least in part, commanded by Moses. That they had some kind of religious, biblical basis for what they were doing. And God says, I hate them. I despise them. He says, I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. The idea is I will take no delight in. It will be a stench to me. It will be repulsive. Verse 22, though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard. I won't even look at the peace offerings of your fat beasts. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. I won't listen. Now think about what he's saying. I won't take any delight in what you do. I will not accept what you offer me. I will not look at anything you put on the altar, and I will not listen to your religious music. In other words, I am turning completely away because it is so offensive to me. I hate your worship, is what he's saying to them. Now, think about again what these prosperous religious people would have heard when their prophet Amos is getting up and saying, God is saying to them, I hate everything that you do in your church ceremonies. I hate it. Now, why is God so offended by their practices? Well, if you go back to verse 15, you'll start getting an idea. What God's message to them is, hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. What God, his problem is, is with their ways, with their practices, with their conduct. Listen to what God says to them in Amos 4. I'm sorry, in Amos 8. He says, hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, when will the new moon be gone? A religious festival, that we may sell corn. And the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small, and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their 
works. God is saying, I know how you live. And I know how your worship of me, your new moons and your Sabbaths, connect to the way you live. You say, when can they be done so we can get back to all our crooked economic practices? When is the Sabbath going to be over so I can get back to profit-making as if they're checking their watches during corporate worship, wondering when they can get back to the things that they really love? God also has quite the word through Amos to the women of Israel. Listen to what he says in chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, hear this word, ye kind of Bashan. You cows of Bashan. Now, I'm no historian and I'm no cultural anthropologist. I've yet to identify a world in which calling a woman a fat cow is a compliment or would be received in any gracious way. But this is literally what he's saying. He's saying, you cows, listen to what God's word against them is. He says, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, lo, the days shall come upon you, that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. The picture here may be that these women were actually egging on their husbands to further oppress the poor of the land economically for their own benefit and for their own comfort. And so Amos spares absolutely no words. You cows of Bashan, this are, these are the kinds of practices that I'm speaking out against you. Again, they are prosperous, they are religious, and they are absolutely unholy. They're absolutely defiling the desire of God for his people to love him supremely and to love one another selflessly, to love their neighbor as themselves. And so Amos' word of the most sobering kind of judgment comes against them. When God shows up on the scene, he says, beware. There's going to be no light there. It's only going to be darkness. It's going to be the result of God's searing judgment against you for your wicked practices. Here's this anticipation. When God shows up, it's going to be to our benefit, this prosperous and religious people says. God's admonition to them is, think twice. When I come on the scene, it's going to be against you. And you are going to be in the dock for judgment. And third, before we close tonight, I want to look at what I'm going to call just simply an application. An application. What does this mean for us in 21st century America? Well, it might be easy for us to think this passage doesn't have much to say to us because we're not like the northern kingdom of Israel. It might be easy for us to say, well, they were idolaters. They had a blended form of worship. They weren't truly worshiping Yahweh. They weren't connected to him. They weren't following his covenant that he had anticipated, that he had provided for them. But us, we preach the Bible. 
We read the Bible. We come. Surely we have worship that is appropriate to God. Well, they had their feast days. And yes, we have our holidays. We have our holy days. But, but those are different from theirs. We don't oppress the needy. We don't stand on the, sh on the poor for a, a pair of shoes. That was then. And while we could see this message applying to other people in our land, certainly not us. Well, let's step back and see if there are any applications that we can draw. The first thing that I would say is let's assess what it says, what this says about God. What, do, what does this passage from Amos say about the God whom we worship? Let me suggest one thing. It suggests how God views worship. What is worship, biblically? Many times we're conditioned to see worship as something that we primarily do in church as part of a particular time in the church service. We have a worship service, or we have praise and worship, thinking about singing, or about the musical instruments, or about what we are offering to God when we come together. And in reality, this is a totally unbiblically narrow view of worship. What worship is, ascribing worth to God, ex uh, uh, giving Him the honor that He respects, goes infinitely beyond what you do when you're in this church building about opening your hymnal and singing words. What worship is before God goes to the very core of how you order your life, not the words that you know how to mouth. We, we, we might say it in the words of the New Testament. Think about what Colossians chapter 3 says. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. What is worship? Anything you do in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he says, how much should you do? Everything. Everything is to be an act of worship. Which means to say that when I come to this church for a particular act of corporate worship, when God sees that my worth that I'm ascribing to him in how I act for the other six days of the week, and the words that I use, and what I truly find value in, if that is departing far from him, what I do here matters nothing to him. He hates it. He despises it. Again, think about what Jesus said. He said, if you bring your gift to the altar, what's that? An act of worship. And you remember that your brother has ought or something against you. You have offended him. You've sinned against him. You have an act of worship toward God, bringing something to the altar. But you are out of fellowship with a brother based on your wrongdoing. What does he say? Leave your gift at the altar. Don't come and worship me. Go make things right with your brother, with your friend. And once that's fixed, then come back and offer your worship. Now, that to us almost seems backward, but no. God is saying, the kind of worship that you offer me externally, if it is not matched by the kind of life and character and conduct internally, I hate what you offer me. I despise it. It offends me because 
it does not flow from the kind of heart that I am looking for in the first place. What, who is God, and what is he like? What he expects from you is not first your religious ceremonies. He expects the fruit of a changed and repentant life. That's who God is. And that is what he expects from us. Here's a second application. Not just for what this says about God, but what does it say about us as 21st century Americans? What does it say about what God expects from our country? I think there's real application here. What does Amos come back to over and over and over again to the northern kingdom of Israel? He says, I am repulsed by the way you treat the poor of your land. I am repulsed by the economic oppression that is ongoing in your country. And that's what needs to change. In fact, again, do you remember what God said to his people? He said, I hate, I despise your religious ceremonies of worship. What does he say in verse 24? What does he want? He says, take away from me. The, song, the noise of your songs. He says, but let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. That word mighty has the way, has the meaning of just ever flowing. It's like a waterfall that never stops. What is God saying? He's saying, you know, just cut out the worship right now. Cut out the public ceremonies. Cut out the holidays right now and the feast days. He says, what you'll do to please me is when righteousness publicly in your society is like a flowing river and when the, I'm sorry, like a waterfall and when the justice in your court system is like a river flowing over and over again consistently. I'm looking for judgment publicly, and I'm looking for righteousness. And in what way does he come back to over and over again? Yes, they had sexual immorality in that day. You'll see it in Amos. But that's not the main focus. He said the main focus is what you are doing to the poor by way of oppression. And it makes me wonder. Someday God is coming in judgment for our land. If his word means anything... His judgment is not just against the, uh, the land of Israel, his people in the Old Testament. It is against all the lands that are around about them. And when his judgment comes against us, I wonder to what extent. It will not be just in the, in the areas of sexual morality and other things that we tend to focus on as a Christian church. I wonder how much it will be in economic oppression. I wonder how much God's judgment will fall on us in, in, the ultimate, in the ultimate balance for the way the wealthiest society in the world treated the poorest in our land. For large cities that have people in winter living in tents and other homeless encampments. For, for people who have gotten fantastically wealthy, not by creating opportunity, but by deception and by iniquity and by fraud. I'm not making a policy statement here. I'm not suggesting and telling you as a political matter how we should solve these issues. I'm just simply saying we should listen to the minor prophets when they speak about economic oppression and we should sit up and pay attention. You see, because this just wasn't to God's people in the Old Testament. Do you recall reading in the book of Daniel when God brings judgment against Nebuchadnezzar? 
and sends him off to live literally like an animal for a period of time until he comes to his senses and realizes who God is. Do you remember what Daniel said to him? Here's what he said. He said, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. It may be, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility, of thy peace, if it holds off the judgment of God for a period of time, O king, show mercy to the poor. And I think all of us, in whatever way God calls us, we should be sounding a trumpet to the wealthiest society that the world has ever known and saying what God expects from you is the same thing he expected of Nebuchadnezzar. Show mercy to the poor. What will that final judgment on our country be? The greatest and most prosperous of societies. I wonder whether God's message to us will be of a similar message that it was to his people in the 8th century BC through Amos. Who God is, he expects holy ways, not just holy days. What God expects from societies and cultures like ours, he expects justice and righteousness to be a part of a transformed life and a transformed society. And finally, and perhaps now getting closest to home, what does God expect from us? What does God expect from us in this Christmas season? Let me just suggest one simple concept for us to chew on as we go in to what is very nearly a holiday week. Remember these people of Israel. They had feast days. They had public worship. They had holy days. And yet those holy days did nothing to stimulate them toward God. They were simply a kind of novocaine to numb them to the reality of their distance from God. You see, there is a kind of religiosity that does not spur us closer to God with more sensitivity to what he demands and expects from us. There's a kind of religiosity that simply deadens us to the reality altogether. I think of it in some ways as a holiday, a little bit like a statue. Uh, I, you know Lars and I went down to North Carolina recently. I went to the, play, uh, the school that I went to. And right in front of this large chapel, this beautiful neo-Gothic chapel at, at this university, there is a statue. And the statue is of, well, the founder of the university, the one who was named after Mr. Duke. And he's standing there with a, with a cane and looking very regal in this large statue. And I think he's, he's got a stogie. Um, Durham is kind of the tobacco uh, capital, or at least was, of the country. And I think that's how he made his money. And, and so he's just standing there very regally right in front of the chapel. Now, now think about a statue. Think about a freshman at this university coming, how often do you think he walks past Mr. Duke and allows his heart to be warmed? Ah, what a wonderful man. What a hero. What a benefactor of all of us. No, I can tell you, walking past that statue most days for about four years, 
You don't give it a second thought. It's just a statue. It's just there. And the danger for us is that our holy days, our feast days, become a little bit just like a statue. Oh, we might genuflect to it on the way back, kind of give a bow to it. It might be something that we just enjoy because it's history, because it's tradition, because we've always done it like this. We always do Christmas dinner just like this. We always have just this kind of celebration. And all the while, we risk God looking at us and saying, I hate what you're doing. I hate how you celebrate Christmas. Because there's nothing about it that draws you closer to me. It only is reinforcing your own fleshliness and your own selfishness. I was confronted again with this thought that on Christmas Eve services all over the country this upcoming Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening, when people flock in and fill up churches and listen to beautiful music and sing the same old carols over and over, God in heaven may be looking at those services and saying, I won't listen to a word of them. I won't be pleased by one of them because not one of them is truly directed toward making you a different person in the way you approach to me. And so as we close here this evening, what I would ask you is whether your holy day, as you look at Christmas, is truly and intentionally spurring you and your family to holy ways. Whether your Christmas celebrations this year will be those that point all of you to the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to provide to you, to the good tidings of great joy that we looked at this morning that the angels testified to. Or instead, it will be one of those kind of statues, a little shot of Novocaine, in order to numb you to the realities that God expects from you. I pray that the word of Amos, a very sobering, plain-spoken word, will be the kind of word that we need to make sure this holiday directs us to his holy ways.